Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited about today's guest. We have Juliana Margulies. She is an Emmy, Golden Globe, and Screen Actors Guild Award winner, currently starring as Laura Peterson on Apple TV's The Morning Show. She previously starred as Alicia Florrick on the long-running hit CBS show The Good Wife, which she also produced and was one of the original cast members of ER. Amazing show. More recently, Juliana starred on critically acclaimed series including Billions and The Hot Zone, and has also added author to her list of credits with the recent release of her memoir, Sunshine Girl, An Unexpected Life. She's been involved with Project ALS and Erin's Law, and is also a board member of the New York City-based MCC Theater Company. Juliana, welcome into the back room. Thanks for having me, Andy. And we're actually in the back room. We're not doing some Zoom thing. We're we're <laughs> we're like real human beings interacting in the flesh. It's great. Yeah, it's it's wonderful to just roll out of bed, being in the in the country, and come here. It's yeah, awesome. no, we we do this upstate New York in the Hudson Valley, and uh, sometimes people who come on the pod live up here, and uh, we've had a few people to do that, and it's been great. You know, it's like you know, especially coming out of the pandemic where we all were isolating, it's kind of nice to actually be in the same room with people. Yeah, there was a solace during the pandemic because we all were in lockdown up here. Just knowing you all were nearby, even though we couldn't see each other. I went once, I visited Paul and Julie and sat six feet apart and and then left. Like, didn't didn't use the bathroom, (laughs) like literally. Isn't it crazy? (laughs) I was thinking about this last week. I was talking to my kids about it, actually. Like, you know, the pandemic was such, and it's not, it's not over, it's you know, in over. terms of people dying and getting sick. And I want to make that clear. But the the part that I wanted to bring up is like, there was that moment where like, we were just all like, if you saw another human, you thought you could die if yeah. they got too close to you. Like that was such a weird, like it's, it, it, it's, to, it was existential, you know, yeah. in that I remember going to the, it's a little bit, it gets a little bit Trumpy up where I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the supermarkets, remember, I want my time back from washing all, it took me four hours <laughs> to oh. wash all the food yeah. on the back porch and leave it sitting for hours out there. But I would go to the market and they had the arrows, you know, right. you walk this way, six feet apart, there were signs everywhere. But of course there were the MAGA people who defy science and don't believe in science. And I saw this woman coming the other way at me. And I said, no, 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 no. Turn around, turn around, <laughs> arrows, follow the rules. And she started bitching and moaning. And, and, and I said, you must turn around. And then I, re- I yelled, I don't want to die. Turn <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, what am I doing? Yeah. I mean, this is insanity. It's and such I- a strange thing to remember those days where it was like watching like a like the walking dead yeah. where like you feel like oh my god i i'm i went to a a, a mark like an open air like a migliorelli kind of thing uh i remember uh during that period and when i got back into my car i was like oh my god i i touched the door handle yeah. and i think i just touched my face like for 3 days yeah. i literally thought i was going to die like I was just waiting for the symptoms to come. And it was like terrifying. It was terrifying for everybody and really tragic for yeah. so many. And yet here we are. I was just thinking today because I used to always keep hand sanitizer in my mm. car. And I realized when I got out of the car today, I was like, oh my God, I, I don't have hand sanitizer in my car. I don't carry it in my bag. And why did I stop? 
because you start you it, human beings are we just get used to what's put in front of us right you know like it was a no-brainer i always had and i was flying back and forth to go and do the morning show during lockdown and that first ride on the plane i, I remember i had two masks on a face shield gloves you know and then you look back and you're like and i just sat there for six hours on my way to la comatose mm. i didn't want anyone touching me or talking to me and I, I think we've all missed that collective just communication and being able to see people it's so nice to yeah. see people no and just to travel i mean I, yeah. i've been on one flight in the last three and a half years and i was to go to my son's wedding in mexico like i'm still a little phobic with some of this stuff oh, yeah. um i'm over it i've been traveling so much Yeah. No, I, I mean, look, my I have family members and friends. They they flew places. They had parties. Yeah. And I was like, I I can't I can't do it. And but uh, this past fall, I started going to restaurants, and right. so I'm basically living my life the way it used to be. Right. But it's just weird when you think back on and you know we were talking before about kids and how they suffered through the through the lockdown and not being in school and the development that they didn't get a chance to experience that is so critical to their development, you know, socialization. It's critical to adulthood. I feel yeah. so bad for those teenagers that the most important thing at that age should be your social life and your independence. Mm -hmm. And they had neither. Mm -hmm. So what I want to start <laughs> with is probably not the way interviews with you usually start. Okay. okay? I Bring talk it about, on, Andy. I don't want to talk about movies and TV right now. We're going to get to that. But I want to start with your book, which came out about a year ago, and it's called Sunshine Girl, an unexpected life. And I found so many interesting things uh, about it, parallels to my own family, which, which <laughs> I can share in a moment. But this book started out as a, uh, as like an acting handbook, right? It wasn't yeah. supposed to be a memoir. That's right. Yeah. I, um, I was shocked when I, you know, seven years on The Good Wife. So you're talking 156 episodes, mm -hmm. 156 hours of television. And um, I was always a little surprised at set etiquette behavior because I grew up, uh, I learned I learned the craft of television young on ER, mm -hmm. where the camera, the crew, the actors were all collectively the ensemble of the show. Mm. Like without either, you don't get either. Right. You know? And it was a great training ground. And, you know, on top of the fact that you just treat human beings respectfully and I, no matter what their job is, you know? And so I was so shocked some days to see people behaving badly in front of crew members or complaining. And I'd be thinking, I would just cringe thinking like, God, you make three times more than they do and they will be here 17 hours longer, mm. you know, just shut up. So it actually was Michael J. Fox and I were sitting there one day in court. Court, court days were always the, the worst because they were so long, because there were so many, so much to cover. And uh, he looked over at me, he was at the, the other council table, and he goes, you're looking at behavior, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, it's shocking. And he goes, I've always wanted to write a handbook, like how to behave on a set. And I said, we should, do, let's do it. And he goes, yeah, let's do it. So I started writing this, you know, what not to do, what to do. You know, Michael Caine had written a book years ago about saying good morning to your DP because you want to be lit well. And that, that always stayed with me. I read it when I was in, in college. And, um, and I was like, of course you should always say good morning to your DP, not just because you want to be lit well, but because you should be kind and lovely. Important role <laughs> on the film. Work with. Yeah. So anyway, I started writing it and, uh, and I, I started weaving in into the chapters my own 
life story a little bit. Mm. And when I sent, I had about nine chapters and they had been asking me to write a book while I was on The Good Wife. I had been asked by many different publishers, does she want to write a lifestyle book? Does she want? And I was like, dear God, no, no you know, <laughs> I, have, I have nothing to impart. And so then I was writing, I started writing when I finally had time. And when I sent the nine, the nine chapters in, my agent said, you know, acting handbooks don't sell, but you've got a hell of a story here. Try and write mm. that. Wow. And, um, and that's when I was like, do I have a story? Is this worthy of telling or reading or will anyone get anything out of it? And it's been such a truly a journey I never imagined because when you write a book, it has a very different life than when you act in a movie or a TV show or do a play mm. and you never know who's picking it up and reading it. Mm -hmm. So it's just this constant, you know, narrative of people saying, by the way, I read your book or suddenly getting a letter from someone saying, I just finished your book and I want to talk about my family. You know, it's given me the courage to change my, it's just a me. It's, it's a very different journey than acting. And I really loved it. Mm -hmm. Don't well, know you, if I'll ever you do did it again. It very, I mean, it's, <laughs> you did it so authentically and you, you know, I mean, that's the key to doing a, a, a memoir is to just not bullshit and to yeah. be honest. But I was going to ask you, what, give me, can you have an example or two of like bad etiquette on set by yeah, People. I mean, without naming names. Mm -hmm. Well, you could feel free to name names. <laughs> we won't press you on that, though. Yeah, you know, so when one person comes to... You're hired as a professional. When you get hired, you are a professional. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of actors that threw tantrums because they didn't like the writing or they didn't know their lines and mm -hmm. they were angry. And I would come home. I'll never forget my husband, who's not in the business at all. And I was like, God, it was like putting out fires all day long, mm -hmm. people having tantrums and screaming. And <laughs> and he said, you know, in in my line of work, if anyone came in and threw a tantrum, they'd be fired. Right. You don't do that in the professional mm -hmm. world. And it hit me. I was like, wow. What? You know, so, so how do you then, I know actors are temperamental and listen, what we do, it looks easy, but a lot of times it isn't. But, but your job is to make it easy. Mm-hmm. I am paid to come to work on time and know my lines mm -hmm. and be kind and decent to people. Mm -hmm. Also, as an actor, for me, I need to work in a safe environment. If I'm going to be as vulnerable as I can be on camera or funny or whatever it is, take risks, I need to know that the entire crew and cast is behind me. How do you create that environment? By treating everybody with, you know, kindness and respect and being there for each other. So when one person comes in and starts railing, it's an environment I can't work in. It's very difficult to then calm the set down. Or if you come in, like we had this one actor was always high on, not pot, I wish it was pot because then he would have been more mellow, but never knew his lines ever. And I remember finally, and I just wanted the crew, I had a little kid at home, you know? So it meant if he didn't know his lines, it meant I couldn't get home to put my kid to bed. Mm. I'd already left at 5 a.m. and didn't see him. So I used to actually memorize his lines as well as mine, just in case. Especially in a court scene, my character can can do all the law talk, you know? Mm -hmm. So I used to memorize his lines. My husband would be like, you're crazy. Why don't you just call the head of the studio and say, this is not... And I was like, it's just exhausting. Sounds like he might have been like a meth -ed. Acting. <laughs> nice. That's what I would call a 
Grandpa Irving joke. Yeah, yeah, I get that a lot from my kids. Usually followed with, Dad, that didn't land well. Uh, I don't my... know in today's world with, with all the phones recording everything that that would be acceptable anymore. You know, I think people are a little bit more hesitant to um, behave badly when they know that it can show up on social media. Right, right. Um, we tried to have a rule, no phones on set because it was so distracting. Mm. I, only when my kid was a baby did I have it on silent. And I, I would say to my nanny, unless you call, if you call, it's an emergency. And there was only one time, actually, Griffin was playing the judge. The phone rang, I'm in court. And I was like, I'm sorry, you guys, I got to get this. And my kid had broken his arm and three places. and But that was the only time I've ever actually picked up a phone on set. That's the other thing nowadays. It's like, leave your phone in your trailer. You know, when you're in the middle of a scene with someone and they yell, we need 10 minutes for lighting. And that person that you're doing the scene with is on their phone like this. And then they say an action, they put the phone down. That disconnect has already happened mm. between you and that and your acting partner. So I find, you know, as much as modern technology is great in that in that we can all do a lot of things we weren't able to do before, it cuts off human contact, especially when it comes to acting. Mm. Because everything, you know, acting's reacting. So it, 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 I think it's really difficult. And I, I have so much respect for sets that refuse to have phones. Mm -hmm. And so you started, you started writing the book when you had chicken pox or? Yeah. So when I, when I um, wrapped uh, the last day, I got, I, I discovered at three in the morning, I had chi adult chicken pox, which is, uh, more painful than anything you can imagine. So you hadn't been uh, vaccinated and as a kid or? No, I had not. Mm -hmm. Not for chicken pox because the chicken pox vaccination didn't exist. Were you a Trumpster when you were a kid? <laughs> Was there some kind of like political aversion to vaccines you, know, you and your family? It's so interesting because my mother, who was very holistic and, you know, brown bread, brown sugar, everything was organic. She was actually way ahead of her time when I think about it, but because she had seen the polio outbreak when she was a little girl in Brooklyn, vaccinations were absolutely on the table for her kids. Like we had the polio, we had whatever vaccine you could get, but really the chickenpox vaccine didn't come out until years after I had already become gone into my twenties. And I figured oh, well. like, well, I don't need it now. I, what adult thinks they need it? And by the way, and this is for anyone listening, after I got adult chicken box, my doctor said, let me just tell you, you want to get the, what's the other one? Shingles. Shingles, oh, yes. my, Which I've never had. But he said, if you think chicken pox were painful, let me tell you, get the shingles vaccination. And I did. I got, you get them six months apart. Mm -hmm. You're a little bit fevery for a day. It doesn't matter because I hear shingles are just the worst. And then a friend of mine who didn't have the shingles vaccination at 40, got it in her eye oh, Jesus. and had to have surgery and it ruined her retina. Wow. So I'm just saying, just do it because it's not worth it. Yeah, kids, the vaccines work. <laughs> they work. <laughs> it's not just a, a Fauci and uh, right. fraud thing going on. And so your book, you, you do get brutally honest in your book about your, your, your family life. You grew up in some chaos. Yeah. Love, I, a lot of love. A lot of love. But chaos. Crazy chaos. And also not really child-centric, one would say. You know, I the reason I wrote the book In Bed with Chicken Pox was because I was trying to figure out how did I get here? Why was I holding on to so much stress in the last seven years that I allowed myself to get so sick? Mm -hmm. Not that you can avoid 
you know, a disease like chickenpox. I mean, it ha it's going to happen, right? A virus. But I really needed to do some self-searching as to why I kept, no matter what, on The Good Wife, I used to look at it as an Olympian, would look at how to face the Olympics. So you just train, you put your blinders on, you train, you eat well, you don't get distracted. And that's how I approached learning nine pages of dialogue a day, every day, after working a 14-hour day. Like, mm. I had to just really, really commit and do it well. Otherwise, why do it? And what happened was I held on and held on and held on. And then the second you, they always say that, you know, the second you finish something, your body goes, and you're done. Right. And so I wanted to sort of explore why I got to that point, why I let myself get to that point <clears throat> without saying, guys, I need a break. This, this is killing me. I can't. Mm -hmm. So when I started, when I started sort of really digging in and writing whatever came to mind, because that's how you have to start writing. You have to write what you know and vomit it out on the page, as my editor would say. And then you edit later, you know? And one of the one of the remarks I keep getting from people who have read the book is, how did you remember in detail so much when you were little? And it's because you remember trauma and mm -hmm. drama. You don't remember an everyday okay day. You don't remember the norm. You remember the ad, abnormal. Right. You know? That's what stays with mm -hmm. you. And so it was actually also because I kept journals since... I was, when I could start really writing at around the age of eight, I kept journals and some of them are just silly and ridiculous, but I have boxes and boxes of them. And I sat down and I read them so I could actually see the date of all of these traumatic experiences that happened and good experiences that happened. I could actually make a timeline for myself wow. through my journals. And I highly recommend anyone keep a journal just because you think you're going to remember, but you don't. So, so it was a lot of chaos because of my divorced parents and because of their self-searching and their sort of need to um, find their way in this life, mostly my mother. My father was also a self-searcher, but he was a practical self-searcher. Is, is that like a nice way of saying like <laughs> self-consumed? <laughs> yeah. Like I a mean, modern 2023 version of saying my parents were narcissists? <laughs> yes. My mother definitely was a narcissist. My father, I think, was more of a melancholic. He was a philosophy, philosophy major, and everything was very deep for him. There was nothing that was light and easy. You know, like my dad was, was the kind of, you know, he became a vegetarian in 1959 before anyone was doing that. And, and it was just his own private world. Did he, he even just, have vegetables back then? <laughs> <laughs> they, they they had vegetables, but they didn't have the beans and the tofu and the nuts go. and the things, mm -hmm. you know. But um, he 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 was, uh, you know, an unexamined life is not worth living, right? That was his modern mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. Let's examine who we are on this earth in order to better who we will be, basically. And my mother was more of, I think, also because my mother was a, a ballerina and beautiful and got married very. Young. Well, in those days, I guess not so young, but she got pregnant and then they got married. And when they got divorced, by the time I came around eight years into their marriage, my mother's world opened up, not just in terms of her realizing she couldn't be a ballerina anymore mm. because she was 30 and had three children, but also because men were falling at her feet every door she walked into. So... And there, she picked up a few of them. She picked up many. It was a revolving door of men. Mm. And I think my mother existed on this high 
of men's adulation mm. to her beauty. And um, and she definitely didn't want an ordinary life. She wanted an extraordinary life. And and even though, you know, still to this day, I mean, she's in Ghent, New York now. I, I, I have her in a wonderful home there because she has dementia. And it, it's, it's actually shocking for me some days because, I mean, I love her very much. She's the only mom I have. And I've gotten over the anger mm-hmm. and we've talked through it. She, she, thank God was a self-searcher because by the time I said, you and I need to go to therapy because I can't have a relationship with you until you, until you cop to the shit you put me through, mm-hmm. you know, you know, one of the biggest was living for three years with her 21 year old boyfriend when I was 15. I mean, that was, that was devastating for me. And that was a cutoff point for me. And it also, the worst part of it was it was an absolute cut off from my father. He said, that's it. She's, Mm. she's nuts. And I think in my adolescent mind, I always hoped up until that point that somehow they would rekindle their friendship, not marriage. I knew that wasn't going to happen. He was already remarried, but I just didn't want her think him thinking ill of her because I thought then he would think ill of me. Mm. But you had an amazing turning point at some point where you stop being so angry at your mom exclusively and then started getting angry at your dad because of why? Yeah. I mean, I, it was when I was pregnant with my kid. Um, my father had given me this beautiful, beautifully wrapped bundle of letters I had sent him. So I lived in England with my mom for two years and he was, my dad was in New York. And I used to write to my father and it was a very difficult time financially. We were, we were absolutely destitute and living in not good conditions. And I would write home to my dad saying, you know, when can we go home? I love you. I miss you. And he wrapped them all up and gave them to me for Christmas just before I got engaged and found out I was pregnant and blah, 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 blah. And I hadn't read them. I was busy. And I was sitting on the floor organizing my office one day. That's what else comes out of a chaotic childhood is you get very organized as an adult, at least for me, that's my sense of power. Mm-hmm. It's like I can control the papers and the dirt and the organization of my home. And I started reading the letters that I had sent my dad and I just bubbled up with anger because it was suddenly this, it was a lightning bolt moment, you know, when I went, oh my God, I've been blaming my mother all these years. Where was he? Right. Why does he get no blame? I put him up on such a high pedestal. And I was like, you bore me into this world too. You're half of me. Why didn't you stop her from taking us away to England? Why didn't you stop her from from all the crazy stuff that she was doing? Or why didn't you take us? Why wasn't I important enough for you to mm-hmm. say to her, you're nuts. I'm going to take these children and put them in a safe environment. And it was all, I think, because suddenly I had this baby growing inside me. And I, I thought about him at my age, if he had gone through what I had gone through, would he only blame me? You know, how, how would he feel? Right. And how, as a parent, can you allow that? How did you not know any of my teacher's names? How did you not know what, what, what I was doing in school? He never came to a, a school play because he lived on the other side of the pond, as we say in England. So... So that became a turning point for me of realizing that women get blamed for everything. And it's unjust and it's not right. I'm not taking away my mother's 
responsibility in all of this. But I called him on it and I said, you know, I don't know why you'd give me these letters. These letters are painful for me to mm. read. I don't want to read these letters. These letters are a little girl saying to you, I'm miserable, help. It was an SOS signal. And you just sat there and you didn't do anything. Why do you think he, he didn't do anything? You know, to his credit, and he wrote me back this nine-page letter. That phone call, I think, was the most devastating phone call he's ever had. Because our relationship was in a really good place at that point. And it, what he wrote was, I didn't see it. Mm. I I did the best I could. And I thought that was providing an education for you girls and giving your mother enough alimony to have a roof over your head. But I also was struggling. And I think when I heard that, you know, kids, kids think their parents are, you know, these people that can do anything, right? We look up to them. We, we, we think they're invincible. And when you hear that they're struggling, because he never showed me the struggle, I didn't see it. Like when I came to New York City to visit him as a kid, it was always like a fantasy. You know, we'd go to Tavern on the Green for my birthday and then out to see Annie on Broadway. My stepmother was wearing Chanel suits. My father was wearing, you know, Ralph Lauren. They looked like a the most glamorous Upper East Side couple you can imagine. Unbeknownst to me, my father was in debt. Mm. When I came to the city, he just wanted me to have the best time with him. And he was like a, a like a madman ad exec guy, right? Yeah, he was very successful as a copywriter, and then and then through that as an art director, mm -hmm. not an art director. I apologize. He didn't draw, but he was the creative director of many huge ad advertising agencies. But he um, he never invested well, and he wanted to quit the business every second he could get. So at fifty, he retired without without the kind of funds that him and his wife were used to living on, even though they kept living on Right. It. It's not what you make, they say. It's how much you spend. <laughs> it's what you spend. And I really didn't find any of that out until I got ER. Mm. And I was 25. And my dad called me and said, can you help pay my mortgage? Wow. And that's when I realized, like, wait, what? This guy who wrote Plop Plop Fizz Fizz? Oh, he was... Your dad wrote Plop Plop Fizz Fizz? He did. I mean, I one of one of my favorite gigs in the business is voiceovers, and I was the voice of Chase Bank for seven years. And in the early days, when I was, I would walk into Sachi and Sachi to do my voiceover, and all the guys there were like, "Did your dad read the script? Did you?" They all knew him. He was legend, mm. you know. Wow. And then it changed. They changed agencies agencies over the years, and it was so interesting to watch the advertising agency change so much as a voiceover artist coming from someone like my dad, who was the big macha in advertising, because I remember my last voiceover session for, for Chase, this was just before the pa pandemic and lockdown, they all looked like skateboarders. All the executives were wearing, you know, baggy t-shirts and they had their, they had skated over from Brooklyn mm -hmm. to Union Square. It's, it's a very different world now and it's very fast and- I mean, just, like to, to the average person, like if, I think we grow up thinking like, wow, if somebody wrote plop, plop, fizz, fizz, like they must make a billion dollars right. having written something like that. But it's not true. It's not true. There was a, I don't know enough about it, but I know. So he was, when he wrote that, he was at Wells Rich Green 
and Mary Wells, who's actually written a book, she wrote a book a while ago and he's in it. He ended up having to sue them because he did not get paid what he was supposed to get paid. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know what happened with that lawsuit. What I know is he left Wells Rich Green and went to work at a million other ones, Doyle, Doyle, Doyle Dane Bernbeck. Mm -hmm. uh, and before there was a branch of Saatchi and Saatchi that they took over that my dad was creative director. I mean, the, the brutal part of living in England with my mom when I did as a as a young girl was that we begged my mom to move back to the States. And when we finally did, my father took a job in, in London. <laughs> and it was just... That's interesting. Yeah, it was... My mother was furious because she loved living in England. And suddenly we were stuck in New Hampshire, which was not her plan at all. But she had a job in New Hampshire. But my that. dad went to become a creative director of Gray Advertising, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And then he quit three months before Saatchi and Saatchi bought them. So his stock, he always had stock in all these companies, but he always quit before, <laughs> before the big payout. <laughs> so there was no, and then in 87, I, I remember being, I was a, a junior in college when the big stock market crashed. Mm -hmm. And and he said, I've just lost pretty much all your college funds. So wow. you got to start working. So, you know, he just was never smart with money. And he liked to spend it. And he had a wife who liked a lot of chintz. And Chintz is expensive. And so, so, he, so he wrote, uh, so you got these letters and then you had this big phone conversation and then he wrote. He wrote me this beautiful yeah. letter saying, I, you're the most, you and your sister's the most important thing to me. And I'm, I really thought I was doing the right thing. And I'm, you know, between alimony, your schools, taxes, you know, by the time I get my paycheck, I'm living off a third of it. And. And I was, and he said, and I'm sorry. Mm. And, you know, at the time I was 40 and I said, apology accepted. Mm -hmm. Because I think at a certain point, and I've said that with my mom too, like she has said, I'm sorry. And, and meant it. That's so, that's so important. I was talking, we were talking before. There's a lot about your, your childhood that resonates with me in terms of the craziness and the narcissism and all that, you know, I often joke that I was raised by wolves and uh, getting that apology is so important. I've let go of a lot of my shit, even though I never got the apology because it just got to a point where it's like, I got to let go of my shit. It's you know toxic. What I mean? like it's, it, it, is, right? it is toxic. And part of the toxicity, getting rid of the toxicity is also kind of moving out the people mm -hmm. with the toxicity. So it kind of has to go hand in hand. But there was a moment when my son, who's now 30, when he was like maybe Two years old, I had taken him to visit my parents when they were living on Long Island before my dad died. And, you know, two-year-old boys, they just, or two-year-olds, they just run everywhere. Yeah. And I'm running after him. My mother's like, put him in the playpen. I was like, I don't want to put him in the playpen. She's like, put him in the playpen. You won't have to chase him around. I'm like, I want to chase him around. I want him to explore. I want him to experience things. And uh, this went on literally like, you know, they, they didn't have that social clue of like, all right, no, he said what he wants to do with his kid, leave him alone. And this was Father's Day. And it was escalating, and I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but there was a point where my father said, like, oh, we were such horrible parents when you were growing up. And I was like, let's not get into this. It's Father's Day. I'm here. The sun is shining, right? Let's have a nice visit. And he goes, no, I want to I wanna know what was so terrible. Just pick a, pick a time in your life that you thought I did something bad. Wow. And I was like, all right, you asked. I said, how about from, like, you know, 12 years old to 17, being told every single day you're a moron, you'll never amount to anything. And he was a taxi driver. And, he, and, and so he would say, I'm going to save my taxi for you. Oh, boy. So I thought, okay, here we are, the big moment. 
The right. big reveal, kids. This is where he's like, oh my God, son, I had no idea. He, he's, he was smoking his Chesterfield cigarettes, spitting out the tobacco, and he looks at me after a pause, and he goes, you took me seriously? Oh and I was like, God. okay, there you go. I think that's the best I'm going to get today. <laughs> and so when I read that you got your apology, yeah, oftentimes, it's, whether it's with spouses or friends, it's all you ever need is that apology. But when someone doesn't give it to you, it's like, what more do I need to say yeah. to make you realize you're fucked up, you know? So it's great you got that. I think it's, a, it's taught me a lot, too, because I think it's very difficult, especially parents of our, of, of our parents' generation. It was a very different time. And to hear them say to me, I'm sorry, I wish I had done better, is allowing them to be human, right? right. And what it's taught me is to apologize to my son when I know I'm wrong, because I want him to grow up to be the kind of guy who knows how to apologize. And that's the problem, I think, with a lot of what's happening in the world, is that no one's taking responsibility for their actions. But when you see, you know, I, I, I had a moment where I, 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 I was, I rarely flip out at my kid, but it was something, I forget what it was. And I realized like I had I, you know, I wasn't yelling. I just was laying out the law. And then, and he was in his room. He must've been, I don't know, 13, 10, 12, 13. And I, I came and I said, you know, I'm really sorry. I was wrong. I was a hundred percent wrong. And I hope you accept my apology. I mean it sincerely. And he looked up at me and he goes, cool. And I said, no, really, are you taking this in? <laughs> and he was like, totally. And then it was as if nothing had happened. Right. And we got over it and we went and baked cookies or something, you know? Like it doesn't take much, but the toxicity of feeling anger mm -hmm. and feeling that you a haven't e e either apologized for something, so now you're going to overcompensate by being a bigger asshole, right? You know? <laughs> or, or that you're shameful. That's toxic. Yeah, and it doesn't do anyone any good. And I'd like to raise a human being who can think and feel, and take responsibility for their actions. And it's you know it's it's becoming for me, sort of one of those, my mantra, like, I, I was wrong. You were right. right. That well, is so satisfying. The ability to apologize simply means that you're, you're listening. Yeah. You're, you can hear. It's, I don't know if you ever watch CBS Sunday mornings. Occasionally, uh, and when yes, I remember. <laughs> yesterday, they did a great little segment on how people who speak less are more successful in life, in every aspect of, of life, whether really? it's work or relationships or friendships. Because when you speak less, that means you're listening, you're listening. more. Right. And they, the st statistics show that the most successful people in the world, you know, uh, are the ones who just sit back like in a conference room and right. listen to what everybody else it's is Chauncey saying. It's Chauncey Gardner. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why that's being there is one of my favorite films ever. It's yeah. because he just sat and watched. <laughs> like everyone was like, you're brilliant. Yeah. You know? But like when you're in a relationship, <laughs> what's more important, whether it's a parental relationship or a child relationship or romantic relationship, what is more important than hearing and I'm sorry? Right. Because what that's saying is, okay, this person heard me. Right. And understands what I was feeling, accepts responsibility and is letting me know that. Yeah. Boom, done. Like what, 
What else? Huge. You can say cool and just move on because there's no reason not to. Right. It's when people don't do that that it's like you go in your room and this one goes to this room and it's why do they apologize? Can't they just apologize for? Right. And then it, that just festers and it's so unhealthy. So your big break was playing a hooker in Out for Justice. <laughs> nice segue there. Yeah. But you got your SAG card, right? From got that? my SAG card from that. The all important fabulous SAG. Steven Seagal film. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> But it is, it is one of those pivotal moments for an actor because it's so hard to get your SAG card. Right. You can't do a job without your SAG card, mm -hmm. SAG card but you can't, like, how do you get the job? Right, so it's, catch total it's catch a catch-22. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that that job got me my SAG card and got me got me on the sort of the road to, to ER uh, pr fairly quickly when mm -hmm. I was really lucky. That was such a great show. And I, I read a quote of yours because you were on it for six years and 132 episodes something like that. something like that and then in 2009 you returned for one more episode right during, oh yeah i forgot about that during the 15th yeah george and i went back well, yeah the quote is that i called george up and said if you do it i'll do it and we were both very aware we had careers because of that show yeah and we also love those characters. But then this is the part I love. You said, I remember walking onto the Warner Brothers lot and they asked for my ID. <laughs> I used to have my picture on the wall there. <laughs> it was a little surreal, but a lovely way to come full circle. That's a great story. Yeah. Like a, that a, a humbling, like, you know, a generation maybe had sort of come right. into the picture and they didn't re remember the first six years. Right. And now they're asking you. I didn't have a parking thing. spot anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a humbling moment because it also, you just realize like everything comes when it's supposed to come and goes away and comes back. Like, don't get don't get too big for your britches. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to drive onto that lot and just wave to the guy and the gate would just go up. And now I had to show my license, you know, get a permission slip from the office for a parking spot. And it's good. It keeps you, you know, humble. I'm sure George didn't have to do that, by the way. It was probably just me. But I also like, <clears throat> I have to say, someone was, I, w I had a meeting with a writer in New York City last week. And she said, oh, you probably don't go out in public, right? Is that awful to meet at a restaurant? And I said, I take the subway. <laughs> Nobody knows who I am. And if they do, New Yorkers are so cool, no one cares. Right. You know, that they're, they're living their lives. Do you ever see those videos that people <laughs> post on Instagram of celebrities on the subway? Yeah. Like, you know, Keanu Reeves will be just standing yeah. there reading a book. Like, New Yorkers don't give a they fuck. Don't you know? They don't give a fuck. I mean, every now and then, I the, the worst that's ever happened, which is the best, is someone's like, love your work. But they say it quietly because they don't want to draw attention. They're so respectful. So it it I need to live my life where I go to the grocery store and meet my friends at restaurants and live a life. So when I drive onto the Warner Brother lot and they ask for my license, I'm just like, oh, yeah. it's, it's the same way I do when I'm you know, anywhere else. I just assume no one knows. Mm -hmm. And it's a much easier way. Every now and then I'm pleasantly surprised when they, you know, move you to the front of the line because they know who you are, but it's not how life works and it shouldn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And so after ER, you did a bunch of TV shows and some theater. You were in Searching for Deborah Winger, which Adrian was a part of that documentary. I, yeah, I, I, I never saw, the, saw it. It's I really remember, interesting. I remember doing it at Melanie Griffith's house, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, I mean, they just Rosanna had a whole Arquette, bunch of... uh, that was her film. Yeah, she yeah, I need to watch that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a few things. I'm... And then you were on Sopranos. You played Juliana Skiff. Um, yeah, that was a great experience. And so you came to that show when it was already like... The In their last season, uh, yeah. It was already a legendary show. And so that was like a huge thing to be a part of that uh, show at, at, that, at that point. Uh, yeah. It must have been a lot of fun to be on 
like a real, like historically successful. Well, I was a huge fan from the beginning. Who wasn't? Right. It was such such a well done show, and um, it is a strange process. Uh, David Chase works in a very different way. I get a call out of the blue from my agent um, saying, David Chase has written a part for you on The Sopranos. We're going to send you the sides. They don't send out scripts. And I was like, all right. And then the character's name was Julianne. <laughs> I was like, this is a little weird. She's, I was born in um, in Spring Valley, New York, near Nyack. She's from Nyack. Like there, there was a scene written. Is that intentional or is that just I kept I'm reading it and I started to feel kind of gross. Like I was like, wait, what? And even down to one weird thing, because I'd never met him except maybe at an Emmys party because I was on ER when they first started. But even down to that he had a scene where I'm in the in the in the theater with Michael movie theater with Michael Imperioli's character and and my character insists on buying red vines, which was the only time I ever eat red vines is in a movie theater. So I have a weird craving for them. And I suddenly I was like, is what is does he have a spot? Like what's going on? A drone it following. It all you happened everywhere. to be coincidence. That's crazy. <laughs> but then I actually have a funny Funny story that entails Griffin Dunn on that because there's a scene I'm reading where my character's a heroin addict and and she's in her bra and her panties and she she's doing heroin with Michael Imperioli and then she crawls over the waste paper basket and vomits. Sexy. Very sexy, hot. And I was livid. I was like, this is gratuitous bullshit. I don't do these kind of, you know, nakedy scenes, scantily clad. I call Griffin and I go, Griff. Fuck. I think I'm going to turn this down because this is bullshit. Like that. What? What? They're hiring me just to see me in my bra and my panties crawling, crawling on the ground, vomiting. Like it's so degrading. And Griffin, <laughs> Griffin goes, "Don't be an idiot. <laughs> Do it." And I was like, "Why?" And he goes, "Because you will love seeing yourself in a bra and panties 20 years from now." <laughs> I was even like, vomiting on the even, floor. Even vomiting. Yeah. And I remember hearing when he goes, just do it. The character's vomiting. She's shooting up heroin. It's the Sopranos. Don't be an idiot. And I was like, oh my God, he's so right. But I was coming at it from a very different place. Sure. Anyway, I am glad I did that show because I had such a phenomenal experience. And J Jimmy, who I miss every day, could not have been kinder and sweeter. And I'd known him for years just mm. from New York. That's what everybody says, is that he was just such a, a sweet, gentle guy. Sweet, gentle giant, mm -hmm. truly. And Michael, and I mean, it, just all of them. And and actually, there's a funny story about going back to Mad Men. So Matt Wiener had had written an episode, and he was on the set, and I'm, I'm in the episode, and he hands me a, a, a DVD of a pilot he's just shot that HBO passed on. Oh, and this was a Mad big, Men? Yeah. Wow. This was a big thorn in his side and he was furious and he knew who my dad was. Anyone who's writing about advertising knows who my dad is. And he said, hey, Juliana, would you, would you give this to your dad and let me know what he thinks about it? And I said, sure. You know, so I drove up. My dad was, lived in the Berkshires. He's since passed. But I drove up to Great Barrington, Massachusetts. And I was like, dad, I'm working on the Sopranos and this writer. And it, it's, it's all about your, you know, the beginning era when you started advertising. And he looked at me and he goes... So my dad was a vegetarian who didn't drink or smoke. So you can imagine how Boom. three martini awesome. lunches yeah. with steaks mm -hmm. and smoking nonstop were just, you know, he looked at me and he said, honey, I spent my whole life trying to get out of those rooms. I'm not going to spend an hour of my day watching. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had to go back on Monday to work and, and I lied because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. 
Yes. I watched it and thought it was phenomenal. And he goes, your dad loved it? I go, loved it. Wow. That's crazy <laughs> that HBO passed on that, which goes to show you that, yeah, God, people don't, I don't know. It's just weird I what, think the it, things people pass on. You, you know, it, it's, everything depends on yeah. who's at the helm That's at the right. time. And I always say to my friends who are trying to get stuff made, I know how, I'm like, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. You know, I remember that um, Mike White making his acceptance speech at the Golden Globes or one of those awards. And I, I loved how he <clears throat> looked at everyone in the room and he goes, you all know who passed on this for White Lotus, you know, and now it's like one of the most success. success. He said, I, we sent this out to 80 studios and they all passed. One person. It just takes yeah, one person to say that's all it takes yes. is one person. Yeah. So now you did Good Wife, seven years and the bazillion episodes, but you're also a producer of that. So I wanted yeah. to ask you, what is it about producing you love? And it, and do you really want to do more of that? And because that's so different than being an actor. It's just a completely different mindset. Yeah. So, so <clears throat> there's two different answers for that. When I was a producer on The Good Wife, that that happened in my third year on the show. I said, I realized I was putting out so many fires that were happening on set. And I was the eyes for all the writers. The writer's room was in LA. And Robert and Michelle King, who ran the show, would come often. But but there, I, I basically was seeing exactly what was going on, how to fix something. And so they gave me a producing credit, not without any money. And the first year I was, what happens when you're a producer as a lead on a show is that every actor who has a problem comes to you. <laughs> And it was became one of those things where I was like, oh my God, and I'm the lead and I'm learning a gazillion lines a day. And when I go home at night, I have a little baby. It's not like I can, you know, sit and have a cocktail. So the second year, which would have been my fourth year on the show, I said, if you want me to continue producing, because it was a, an asset to them how to make the show run better, mm -hmm. I could see the, the problems that were arising. I said, you have to pay me. I'm not doing this for free. And they're like, no, it's a vanity title. I was like, I'm not interested in a vanity <laughs> right. title. Take my name off. I don't need to be a producer. This is too much work. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they paid me a small fee, whatever it was. And it, it was helpful for them. It was very helpful for them. It wasn't as helpful for me. So you weren't like, it wasn't like, whoa, I love this. I'm a producer. No. And it's great. And the work is great. I loved that they came to me with advice. I did love mm -hmm. that part. I, I, lo I loved that they they had me in the room when difficult decisions were being made and asked me my opinion. Mm -hmm. I think it was very helpful for all of us. But now I'm executive producing a show that I um, am, and I'm working with some incredible writers and my producing partner. So now what I love about producing is um, I'm really in a power position where I get to decide, I mean, we're, we're not quite at the, our writer's room has another, uh, has till May 1st, and then we go into pre-production. So once we get the full green light of pre-production, then I go on location scouts, mm -hmm. casting, hair, makeup, mm -hmm. hire the crew, all of that stuff. And me and my showrunner, um, we, we literally have a list of red flag moments. We do not want our set anything but a place where everyone wants to be. Like I, I said, I, you work too hard on a set to not want to go out and have a drink with these people. Mm -hmm. I don't want a, one rotten apple in the bunch. I don't want one actor coming up and not coming out of their trailer because they don't like a line. You know, you can complain about it all you want <laughs> up until the day we're shooting. But once we're shooting, no. 
because there's a crew trying to get home to their family. You know, right. you're, you're holding up mm -hmm. 150 people. And so, so far, because I sold the show in, in October and then we wrote the pilot. Anyway, so far, every step of the way has been absolutely intriguing and fascinating. And then being able to, you know, um, I'm, I'm working with Courtney Kemp, who's just one of the most incredible showrunner writers. She, she actually wrote on The Good Wife and left to go and write her own show for stars called Power. And then she had five spinoffs and became, she put stars on the map, basically. And she and I just think alike, and she knows me well enough because she used to write for me. And it's just been a real pleasure to be in the collaboration with the writers. Well, from the ground, you started from the ground, ground, ground up. Yeah, ground the floor. idea came from me and my producing mm -hmm. partner. She took it and ran. And I said, these are the three things I want to I want to play on a show mm -hmm. that I haven't seen. I gave her my three, you know, we gave her our five-page outline. And she wrote the pilot in three days. She was just like... And what is this show about? So I'm nervous to talk about it because it hasn't, we have a blinking green light. Mm -hmm. So can I come back sure, after absolutely. it gets picked up and I'll tell you all no, about it? No, <laughs> you cannot come back. We will not allow you back. All right. So we'll put that aside for a second. Yeah. So then you just diet land, the hot zone, billions. You've been on a bunch of shows after Good Wife. And then the morning show, which I just binged, watched like two weeks ago. Because uh, my kids were like, you got to watch this. Because I studied broadcast journalism in school. That was my major. I wanted to be a journalist. And I have friends who were producers on like the Today Show. And it was, right. so it was right up my alley. And I loved it. And, uh, but I didn't know you were on it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know I was. So I was like, oh, well, there's Julian. <laughs> and I got to say, and this is not in any kind of sexualized way, but like it's definitely my favorite lesbian character uh, on TV of all Thank time. Thank you. For the reasons it should be. Because she's strong. She's confident. She's ambitious she's you know obviously beautiful but she's cunning she's this she's that she's just like a real person a regular you know it, it battles all the stereotypes and all that and i think it's a really truly awesome authentic portrayal of a woman yeah. who just happens to be gay but has that been a difficult uh it was that was that something that came did you think a lot about it? Did you apply anything different to acting, playing someone like that? Or I love uh, I love that you just said that because I have to tell you, um, the cartons and cartons of letters this character gets me from these young LGBTQ um, people who have all said what you just said. Finally, a character. I can relate to that isn't a caricature of a gay person. Mm -hmm. She's fearless. She's top of her game. You know, the someone that they can look up to and aspire to be rather than be a joke or that that just a, a sort of gets washed under the rug, you know, where, mm -hmm. where the importance of her sexuality is played out not because she's gay, but because of who she is. And it makes me so happy that it's affected so many kids who are really struggling. They're struggling. And I didn't know that until I played this character. And I, I read every single letter because mm -hmm. I think it's important. You know, you don't always have all the time. So sometimes it takes me six months to reply. <laughs> but I but I think everybody knows that I am truly replying because what a complicated uh, time this is to try and be who you are in the world with all this judgment. 
you know, and, and, you know, it's easier now than it was, but I think Laura Peterson's journey, and I think it's, you know, a testament to the writing. They, they just wrote really well for her. I didn't have to do much. Listen, I went to Sarah Lawrence College. No lesbians there. <laughs> no lesbians there at all. And so it, it, you know, for me, I actually tried to play her exactly how I would play her in a heterosexual relationship. Mm-hmm. That was my feeling about who she was. She's in a, she's in a, you know, a position in her career where she's seen the bottom of the barrel right. and the top of the cake. Well, it's that journey that you just spoke of, the character's journey, what she had to go through and how determined and resilient she was and courageous she was and then not giving two fucks in a way like right. by the time the character really evolves i think that's probably also what resonates with a lot of people in, in the community is, is to see someone who just fuck no I'm... Well, she's taking up her space in the world yeah you know and i think a lot of women especially i'm reading this fascinating book right now that takes place in the 50s about a female scientist called lessons in chemistry have you read that book anyway no. it's just fascinating to me because no man would take her ser- this woman seriously and she's at the top of her game and they're stealing her research work and publishing it and I just thought well that wouldn't happen now you know? and I'm looking at Roe v. Wade being overturned and I'm like wait a minute whoa 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 whoa, whoa stop we made so much progress and and I'm reading this book going oh my god we're going backwards and so I feel like characters like Laura Peterson are integral I was I went back for a third season I just finished shooting and and she just gets better. I mean, it was just so was, juicy. I um, was like injecting. I was injecting heroin watching this show. I'm I couldn't. So glad. I couldn't stop. It's, a, it's well I don't think my dogs got fed for about a week. <laughs> what have you ever seen a, a documentary called Bombshell? The Hedy Lamar story. No. You should watch that. Oh, now I'm going to watch My friend Alexander De- Alexandra Dean. She's the. Uh, she was a, an old uh, 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 grant recipient of my foundation, which you've been a part mm-hmm. of over the years. Uh, very generously. And uh, she, this was her first film. She directed this documentary about Hedy Lamarr. And it, you mentioned Hedy Lamarr literally was an inventor. She invented the technology. It was sonar related that was used in World War II, which is now kind of like the basis of the internet. It is the strangest, but no one took her seriously because she was beautiful and she was an actor Everyone took advantage of her. They stole all the stuff from her. She didn't make a nickel of it, but it is a fascinating story. If you want to watch a documentary, that's I'm going to watch truly it. amazing. It's you're it, going to walk away going, "Oh my god, not only did I not know this about this incredibly famous actor from back then, right. but what a horrible story that she died like kind of destitute because she just got right. taken advantage of." Well, yeah, it's the women of Eniac. Have you heard that story? No. Walter Isaacson wrote a beautiful book called Innovators. And there's a chapter in the book that I had met him at a think tank a while ago. And he he and I were getting into this discussion about how women aren't credited with the things that they do. And he said, he handed me his book and there this chapter called The Women of ENIAC. Six young mathematicians at the invention of the computer were called from all parts of the country. So there was a, it's, anyway, these young girls, they programmed the computer the first computer. And when it got the big, you know, reveal of the computer, not only were they not credited, they weren't invited to the dinner. It was all men. Crazy. And these young girls were just tossed aside. I bet you there's a million stories like that. Yeah. So you've been in so many great films and television, but I have to say for me, you're 
role as Helen Hanfstangel in two thousand Hanfstangel's Hitler: The Rise of Evil. Oh my God, you watched that? No, I'm kidding. I, that just seemed like an easy joke to make. <laughs> Me and Liam Schreiber. <laughs> what was that film about? <laughs> oh my God. But aside from Hitler: The Rise of Evil, which um, pretty much says it all. It in the actually, title. it actually was quite fascinating. She's a real character, oh, Helen wow. Hanfstangel, and her husband. I'm forgetting his first name, Mr. Hanfstangel. They were Americans who went to Germany, American Jews, who went to Germany just when Hitler was coming into power. And her husband was sort of uh, like Hitler's friend. And he was a Hitler supporter. And she started watching what was going on and saying, uh, this is not what we want to, this is not good. This the is fascism's okay, but the... the <laughs> The, the and, genocidal uh, stuff got to stop. Yeah, she she ended up taking her son and leaving him and went back to America just before wow. the war um, started. But it's all about how Hitler got into power and the people who supported him. Interesting. So is this, like, where can that film be viewed? That was on, I think it was a miniseries for CBS at the time. Oh, I'm going to try to But honestly, that. I never saw it. So no, I, I, just, I just saw the headline. I was like, all right, I got to um, ask about that. Yeah. Helen I don't know. Ask Liev. I'm not, I'm not sure... <laughs> Yeah, hell, we've shot that in Helen. Prague, and it was a, it was a one of those like, it just oftentimes I think if Natalie Portman isn't available, they ask the other Jew <laughs> me <laughs> to come and play the Jew. So this is a good segue because the, the the last thing I want to talk to you about is Judaism because you have what I think is is a fascinating and and kind of similar relationship and journey with Judaism that I have, and you tell this. Uh, you weren't very religious, but then you had this incredible Santa Monica, California story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I grew up with a mother who converted to Christianity and a father who married um, a Catholic woman. We celebrated Christmas and Easter. I knew I always grew up knowing I was Jewish, but not, not, we didn't go to temple. I, I wasn't bat mitzvah. It wasn't a, a part of our life. It was a part of my my grandparents and my cousins and my aunt and my uncle. And I mm -hmm. felt very left out when we came back to the States and realized at Passover, I had, I couldn't contribute to any of them. <laughs> and then, yeah, so I was in, I was in Santa Monica, California, and I was taking care as usual of my ex-boyfriend's dog. And I was in the dog park with him and I bumped into this sweet woman and we started chit-chatting and it turns out she was a rabbi. Her name is Rabbi Naomi Levy. Such a lady rabbi name, by the she, way. She has a fascinating story and she's written several books. And mm. her last book, I actually moderated at the 92nd Street Y, which is called Einstein and the Rabbi. It's fantastic. But anyway, so we started talking about Judaism. She said, oh, and you're Jewish. And I, I've seen you on that show. We are. And, and I felt a little misplaced in LA. I'm not, I'm a East Coast person. I need, mm -hmm. I need a season. I need to move forward. <laughs> I need to know what's coming. And it all felt very... Um, pretty and and the same every day like groundhog's day over mm. and over again all that sunshine and heat can get to yeah, you after a while yeah it gets you and so she said why don't why don't you come to my house for passover and i was like no thank you it's like a 2 hour you don't eat you're <laughs> hungry <laughs> you say a bunch of words i don't know and she said please come and so i came and she had this incredible long table in a rickety they had this little rickety bungalow and they her and her husband her husband rob eshman wrote for the Jewish press. And I looked around the table at the Jews and non-Jews and she led the Seder and I was in tears by the end. It was so mm. beautiful because she 
she brought a spirituality to it I hadn't experienced in Judaism. And it opened me up to understanding where I come from, who my people are, and and what our fate has been. And it's so it's so interesting that you bring that up right now because I'm um last year, uh, where are we, 2023? So I guess it was 2021, I hosted, um, I was asked by CBS to host uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. And when I, I said, of course, I'll host that. And when I did my due diligence and started doing all the research and they, I said, I want you to send me every, everything you're going to show so I know what I'm talking about. And the documentaries they showed me and the absolute inattention to the Holocaust education in this country is mind-boggling. And to see the rise of anti-Semitism mm -hmm. has just, it left me speechless, honestly. When you really do the work and see what's going on, and I have to say, I don't believe for a minute it's anything except ignorance. I, I These Holocaust deniers and anti-Semitism is because education has failed. Mm-hmm. And so I actually started a program. I was so, I really was just, I, I couldn't get out of bed the next day. And I looked at my husband, I was like, I, I just feel like one little person. What can I do? And like all these huge holly, what, what's going, why are people not standing up? You know, mm. this is crazy. So as my husband is, he, you know, he used to run the Lincoln Center International. And, and so he knew every board member there. And now he runs this analytical outfit. And so he knows everybody in New York and every, and I don't know how to raise money. I'm the worst. I hate asking people for help. <laughs> I can't bear it. And he said, I'm going to, uh, you should call Jack Klieger. He's the head of the Museum of Jewish Heritage. And, um, and I knew him a bit from a couple of dinners. And then I also reached out to the ADL and Jonathan Greenblatt. And I said, look, CBS just paid me money. I didn't know I was going to have this year. I don't need it. I didn't I did this because it's about the Holocaust Remembrance Day. I don't feel right taking money. And I gave half to the ADL and I gave half of it to the Jewish Museum of Heritage. Mm. And Jack Klieger and I, I said to Jack, 19 out of 50 states in our country teach about the Holocaust. We have got to do something. This is insanity. And we started a program that started out with two interns where it's called HESP, Holocaust Educational Scholastic Partnership. And we hire graduate and college students. We give them an eight-day intensive training on the Holocaust and how to teach it to middle and high school students. And I went to the first graduation the first time, and you know they took pictures and it got some publicity. And next thing I knew, we had 20 applicants for our second semester. Mm. We could only hire six. And the reach is far beyond what I imagined. And it's small, but it's happening. They reach 1,700 students. And and people are like, but New York, New York is full of Jews. Let me tell you something. These outer boroughs. Oh, it's like being in Mississippi. Yeah. I mean, there was one boy in eighth grade who actually asked after the one hour lesson if there were any Jews still alive after the Holocaust, if six million of them were killed. Also, part of this wow. program is That's that we then bust them all for free to the museum so they can see these exhibitions. It's, you know, they have some of the most... Uh, it's one of the biggest archives in the country. And so it's been, it's been a really beautiful, and now, now we're at the place where now we had, you know, 30 Africans. So now I have to start asking people for money because I can only fund it so far. And I've, I've just been getting on the phone and doing all those things that I never thought I 
I would do because as someone who's a recipient of all those emails and those phone calls, I know how overwhelming it can be. So I want to do it right. And so I'm reaching out and having meetings with everyone. It doesn't take much, you know, but how do we, the idea is that this is a blueprint that will go across the country, a service that every um, organization who puts it out there gives these children for free because no one should ever, for lack of funds, not know. Well, that's so important. And, and this be, you know, when you start to think about all the Holocaust survivors that are, you know, once they start dying, well, they which, are. which they are. And that's the tragedy. Is and there's that... that thing that I forget what it, what it is or where it is, but it might be the Jewish Museum somewhere where they took all, a lot of Holocaust survivors and created this video uh, thing from it. Oh, it's where beautiful. They're, t- they're telling their stories. It's, it's, it's that photographer, the German photographer. It's at yes. the Museum of Jewish Heritage right now. Yeah. Um, this beautiful photographer, uh, I'm forgetting his name. He, it is a miraculous thing to see and to hear their stories. And they videoed all of them. And I, I highly recommend everyone going to see it. I mean, you think about like the deniers that exist. And then at the same time, you see what's going on, like in Florida with like trying to, you know. With books. With books and banning, you know, American history about slavery being taken out of class. Like yeah. there, there's this, this, I mean, it's. You know, it didn't start with Trump because racism and anti-Semitism existed in this country. No, but he lifted up the rocks where all the snakes came out. Yeah, it's like in the cartoons when the dog goes into the dog pound and opens the cages and lets all the other dogs out. Like, that's what he did. He let all the dogs out. But he uh, also applauded them. Applauded them, gave them license, gave them legitimacy and and took away the shame. The shame. And, you know, a a friend of mine said, you know, she's German and she said, it is mandatory in Germany that every child knows the history of our country right. and what we did in World War II. That's so important. And if you go to Germany, I took my husband there uh, for his 40th birthday years ago to see this singer that he loves, <laughs> Max Rob. Anyway, we went there. We had Doesn't 20... everyone love Max Rob? And the Palestra Orchestra. <laughs> but we went, and I had never actually been to Berlin. And what was remarkable was literally the monuments are everywhere mm-hmm. as a reminder. Yes, yeah, they should be. And as they should be. And what are we doing in our country? We're, what are we doing? We're knocking down any monuments that any may exist. Memory. And, 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 if, and it is true. And that's, that's my fear. And that's why I started this, this mm-hmm. education program. I do think that everything comes out, of, all hate comes out of ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they say kids aren't born. No, kids you know, are born. Hateful, hap- right? They're not. It's what you put in them. And so I feel like, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. You got to start somewhere. Well, it's like when you see the the protests sometimes and the parents with little kids and the little kids holding a sign that says, God hates bags and Jews, right? right. Like, right. Wh- where does that come from? It's not coming yeah. from a seven-year-old, right? It's coming from the racist, ignorant, anti-Semitic it's parents. Ignorance. And it's it, and yeah. And so it's the same with dogs, right? If they're in a loving environment, they're a loving dog. Like, it's like, it's not right. that hard. Right. Um. So, yeah. So, so being Jewish for me as an adult, because it wasn't really part of my childhood, has given me... I, I, I shouldn't say a sense of purpose because I, I feel purposeful just being a woman on the planet, but it's, it's given me a, a voice to help, you know, if you have any kind of platform, you may as well shine a light on this stuff if they're going to follow you anyway. I stole that from George Clooney when he went to Sudan, but I got it. I, he was like, look, I guess they're all going to follow me anyway. Why don't I, why don't I put it to good use? Right. And, and now that I'm seeing the outcome of it, and in fact, we had this little Oh, this eighth grade class um, up in the Bronx, they were so taken by it and they get to choose their own project at the end of the semester. And they chose it all about 
the Holocaust and the Jewish history and and I have pictures of it and I start crying. I was like, okay, so, mm. you know, it's like acting. If you can reach one person in the audience when right. you're on stage, then you've done your job. Yeah. And so it feels like, okay, these are seeds, right? We have to, we have to plant these seeds to protect what, what should never happen again. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, and, and if you talk to most, what, what I want to do is get all the Holocaust survivors, grandchildren, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, maybe a year and a half ago, this 13-year-old great-grandson uh, uh, in England of, a, of his a Holocaust survivor, they made a TikTok that mm. went viral. Oh, wow. And I thought, young learn from young mm-hmm. so much, which is why our program is working, because it's these young, cool college. And they're not all Jewish. Like, you know, yeah. Aubrey May, who's this girl who's doing her whole thesis on genocide, you know, she said, this is about hate. This isn't just a Jewish cause. This is a cause, mm-hmm. right? Let's just Let's just put it in that barrel. And, um, but truly like, I, I feel like if we could get the, uh, the grandchildren and the great grandchildren from these Holocaust survivors who are dying out now to tell their story, because that is a burden for them. Mm. When you are the child or grandchild of a Holocaust survivor or great grandchild, that story is part of your woven fabric in your DNA and it is their job, but we need to help them. And so I thought, you know, part of this program, I've been reaching out to, the, the Jewish Museum in, in California and, and a whole bunch of other places. And I said, I'd love to get all the grandchildren in one place. Mm, that's a great idea. And and talk about their grandparents' experience because they know firsthand. And is there a, like, do you have a, like any kind of website or anything? For yeah, those? If, you, if you go to the website for the Museum of Jewish Heritage mm-hmm. and, and just look up the HESP, H-E-S-P program, mm-hmm. you'll see and you'll see where you can donate because any penny helps create more finances to get more interns. These interns want to do it. Mm. And we had a, a scary in, incident, not scary, just a couple kids who were ignorant that sort of spoke back. And I got worried that my interns wouldn't want to do it anymore. It just made them want to do it more. Mm. They were like, ah, okay. They well, really don't know. <laughs> kind of proves the whole <laughs> yeah. mission, right? Yeah. So yeah, if you just go onto the website mm-hmm. for the Museum of Jewish Heritage, you can you can find a link that will let you read about it. And and I think there's a whole article on me and the interns in there. And um, every year it's going to get bigger. And, and I'm just so happy that these kids want to teach it and these other kids are willing to learn it. Mm-hmm. It's it sounds like such an important thing, and I want to ask you about other charitable work. Again, you've been very helpful with my foundation, the Adrian Shelley Foundation, but you're also involved in Project ALS yeah. and Erin's Law. Yeah, Erin's Law has been sort of my. Um, I've been championing Erin. Her name is Erin Marin, and she mm-hmm. started a law to teach children that they have a voice when it comes to sexual abuse. She was sexually abused as a child, and for years by someone she knew first a cousin and then a friend. And her mission is we have, Aaron's Law is a one hour mandatory course taught age appropriately from kindergarten through 12th grade in public schools that teaches children they can speak out against anyone who has sexually abused them, hopefully to stop sexual abuse, to be able to say, this is safe touch, this is not safe touch. Mm -hmm. This is a safe secret, it's grandma's surprise birthday. This is not a safe secret. Don't tell anyone or I'll kill you and your family. Right. So smart. It's 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 giving children mm-hmm. tools to have a voice. And we have passed it now in 38 states. India just adopted Aaron's wow. law. And Canada last week. I just got an email from from Aaron. In fact, I want to make a documentary about her. I wish I was a documentarian. I have to find the right person, but she is 
this tiny little thing. She has four children and all no money. And she drives cross state lines with her baby breastfeeding and stands in, in, and, and, you know, literally tries to get her bill passed with legislatures. What's, what's so fascinating is that so many of these legislatures try and make it political. Well, is Planned Parenthood involved? It's like, what? We're talking about children being abused. What? There's known political, and but she knows how to handle it. Well, you're so talking about people who think it's okay for a ten-year-old to carry a race, rapist yeah. baby. So you got to know your audience. So you know? here's and here's the proof is in the pudding, so to say speak. But so New York, I was appalled. We had not passed this law, and she tried for seven years. Wow. And finally, I did the thing I hate doing, and I called Gail King, and I called Mariska Hargitay, and I called Katie Couric, and I called everybody I knew who has any kind of influence or voice. And we wrote letters. Anyway, we got it passed two years ago. The first class that was taught was up in Rochester at a public school to third graders. And there's always a police officer present. And then, um, you know, the age appropriate doctor or psychologist who will come in and talk and the teacher. Mm. And after the hour of, of the class, nine kids nine mm. raised their hands the principal of the school had been sexually abusing them every time it was told you need quiet oh, time with principal so and so and what happened when this became public was that all the students in the 20 years he had been principal at that school Jesus. came forward and said yeah he did that to me to me to me to me he's now behind bars for the rest wow. of his life so it works Right. We have stopped his abuse mm -hmm. for, I mean, and these children are getting the right help, but God help us. We weren't there soon enough. Had New York passed this law when we tried to get it passed seven years ago, we could have saved those children. Right. It is a no brainer law. Like, of course, why wouldn't we give these children well, these but tools? It's, it's like you said before, it's all, all stems back to education. Right. And there, and there, the, there's a, big part of this country. I mean, Donald Trump said, I like people stupid, right? I like of course. the ignorant. Like the ignorance the, follows you know, him. Look at, look at uh, birth control and sex ed, right? Yeah. They don't want sex ed. They also don't want abortions. Right. So it's, it's like, it's so contradictory that, but it all, it's, you know, whether it's about race or, or, you know, sex ed or abuse or any kind or Holocaust, like it, it, it's, there's a movement in our country which is frightening to you like know. just take really important things well, out Aaron, of education. Aaron always says the only person, the only people who should be worried about this law are the perpetrators. Right. Well, but right. So why finish that sentence though? Right. Exactly. And and that it's it's I uh, I I have to really meditate before I go to sleep because, and I don't read the news before I go to sleep. I I cannot believe how. I feel ignorant we this country has become of other people's you know what is it you fear about women or people of color what what are why the hate why are you so afraid of someone someone who doesn't look like you or believe mm -hmm. in what you believe in becoming powerful what why does that make you scared and it's it's it just makes me crazy I mean I I, I go down this rabbit hole and then I can't come back. So I've, I'm trying to learn how to just breathe and know that I can't. Well, I did have, I did have politics on here. I was going to ask you what keeps you up at night, but you've already answered that question, basically. Oh, I had a doozy when, when Roe v. Wade got overturned. I really, 
I, I, I crawled into a hole for a few days and could not stop crying because I was at those, you know, when I was in college being like this, you know, women's rights, man. Like what, what? I mean, I'm reading this book now and hearing that this woman couldn't get a credit card because her husband, because she never married her husband who she had a baby with and women couldn't get credit cards unless they, they're, you know, it's like, wait, what, what? I just want, I just want progress. I want to move forward. I want to get out of this ridiculous hole. Uh, and I, and I feel like we, you know, we elect these nuts. They're nuts. Marjorie they Taylor Green is a nut. Yeah. And, and, you know, we still, we still have to deal with Donald Trump. He's and still, still around. I, and, and, and he's, he's like a barnacle that won't, I just like. Cockroach is more like it actually. Just, it just, it, and then, you know, I'm reading this morning, you know, might be indicted on Tuesday. I'm like, yeah. And, and he'll just get it. Everything, you know, I, every time I got my hopes up, uh, the millions of criminal acts he has, Yeah, like there are so many, there are so many Wait, you mean he's not the most him. victimized human on earth? <laughs> I thought it was all just like, he's such a great guy, but like everyone, everyone on the planet is against him. Oh, so he's actually a criminal. Oh. Do you remember when it was a big deal that Bill Clinton might have smoked pot? Like I look back at those those elections yeah. and I'm like, guys, remember when that was the big deal? Like, like are you uh, kidding me? What's your name? Uh, Michelle Obama wore sleeveless. Sleeveless. Like that was like, Melania was like a do that? hooker for fuck's sake. <laughs> I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it, the world is this, the world, I was going to say America, but the world is kind of upside down right now. It is. And then, but then here's, here's, I just want to, I want to, I want to flip it a little bit because then you do see the humanity in people and the goodness in people in times like this. Like when I, when I, you know, reached out to say, I need to do something about how can I help this rise of anti-Semitism, It was amazing to me. Jonathan Greenblatt got, let's, let's meet mm -hmm. for coffee tomorrow. Jack Klieger, how do you want to educate? What do you want to do? People are there. Mm -hmm. There are humanitarians in the world who, who actually ha have a brain and have an empathetic heart and do want to change. Mm -hmm. So I think the grab line is always the negative line, right? That's that's mm -hmm. that's what pulls us to the headline is, and listen, I'm the worst. Like the second I see Trump indicted, I'm like, I go straight to that article. I missed out on, you know, before I read about, you know, Putin meeting with China, you know, I was more interested in Trump going to jail because that grabs my attention. Mm -hmm. And and I caught myself. I was like, wait, but I do think there are really good people in the world. And I think if we all band together and it is the beautiful part of seeing, you know, with the rise of antisemitism, you know, the Asian community, the black community, the Jewish community all coming together and saying, this is, this is universal hate, mm -hmm. by the way, this isn't just a Jewish problem. This isn't just a black problem. Mm -hmm. This isn't just an Asian problem. And so when you see those communities come together, there is hope because I can't wake up without feeling like there's hope. Yeah. Well, that's a, a lovely way to end our conversation. <laughs> uh, thank you for reeling it back into hope and, and optimism and the future, because I do agree with you. And it's, it's an important message to walk out the door with every day, because sometimes it could seem really dark, but you got to find those. You have to find the light. The light. And it, it, is, and it, there. And it is there. And it's, uh, whether it's a, two steps forward and a step back or one step forward and two steps, like, we are moving. It's hard to see that progress, but it is it is important to 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 you know that that there are people in this world who just don't suck. Yeah, there's so many sucky people right now. 
Well, you've been so generous with your time. Oh, Thank you it. so much for coming in. My uh, pleasure. Coming truly. into the back room. We're always thrilled when, when people come in. And uh, absolutely, we hope you do come back again. Anytime. Anytime you'll have me. Alrighty. All Thanks, right. Juliana. Thanks, guys. That's episode 54. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at Andy Ostroyd. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jan Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Juliana Margulies. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.